Welcome to another episode of Her Voice, Ladies Who Write. Today we're going to talk about Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt is a female figure that holds her own as a writer and political philosopher among the rows of men that have shaped the 20th century. At the same time, she stands out for more reasons than her gender. Her work is difficult to assign clearly to one school of thought. Her writing covers a wide range of topics and themes, including freedom, evil, and the human condition. Despite, or maybe because of this, many of her concepts are relevant still in today's political landscape and discourse, especially her writings on human rights, refugees, and the nature of totalitarianism. She was often the only woman in a room full of men, and the first woman in many positions. She was and still is a respected thinker, someone whose gender did not prevent her from being recognized for her intelligence and insights. However, this may be connected to her distancing of the feminist movement of her time and her insistence that her gender did not matter in her writing. Do female thinkers need to be self-proclaimed feminists to be worthy of study? Do political texts need to be written from a distinctly feminist perspective to hold merit for feminist arguments? These are the questions I'm going to explore in this episode of Her Voice, Ladies Who Write. Much like her work, Arendt herself is difficult to categorize based on her life experiences. Born in 1906 in Germany to Jewish parents, her experience of growing up was what she described as a, quote, typical German-Jewish assimilated environment. She takes up this topic again later in Rahel Warnhagen, The Life of a Jewess, a reflective analysis on the history of Jewish assimilation in Germany on the basis of the biography of a 19th century socialite longing to leave her Jewish identity behind. After studying under influential philosophers Martin Heidegger and Karl Jaspers, she married and moved to Berlin, where she started working on the Warnhagen text about Jewish history in Germany. We could speculate here how studying a field dominated by men and her secret romantic relationship to her mentor Heidegger as a student may have influenced her perception of her own gender and how she saw herself fitting or not fitting into gender roles. With the rise of Nazism in Germany, she fled to Paris in 1933, where she continued working on her research and started working as a social worker in several Jewish organizations. After divorcing her first husband, she remarried a few years later. She didn't stay in Paris for long, though. In 1940, she was forced into the Gurs internment camp in southern France after the French government signed an armistice with the Nazi German government and German-Jewish people like Arendt were seen as a threat. She managed to escape to the United States with her husband and mother after only a few weeks in the camp and finally settled in New York, where she started expanding her work by writing for magazines and giving speeches. This period in her life and world history overall is reflected in her work as well. In 1951, she published The Origins of Totalitarianism, which analyzes a connection between the history of anti-Semitism in Europe and the preconditions for nationalistic totalitarianism. Over the next few years, she gave lectures on politics and philosophy at different prestigious universities in the U.S. and even gained a few guest lecturer and instructor positions over the next few decades. And she gained recognition in Europe as well, somewhat ironically in post-war Germany. Around this time, she published The Human Condition, which is something that we will get into later. In 1961, she was asked by the New Yorker to report on the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem, a highly publicized and morally laden event intended to address the horrific events of the Holocaust. 
Her assessment of the event, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil, caused the biggest controversy of her life and remains what most people know her for to this day. Until her death in 1975, Arendt went on to publish several books and receive numerous awards in Europe and North America. During her lifetime and beyond, her work continues to receive attention and praise alongside criticism. As noted earlier, Arendt was the first woman in many positions, including a professor position at Princeton University. This naturally raised interest in her among members of the feminist movement of the time, but it would soon become apparent that Arendt was not what many feminists wanted her to be. She did not see gender as a relevant factor in her political philosophy, and she held some beliefs that clashed with what the movement stood for. It's not just the feminists that didn't like her. Arendt didn't like the feminists either. She distanced herself from the concept of feminism in both her writing and in remarks such as the infamous quote, it just doesn't look good when a woman gives orders, said in an interview in 1964. This speaks to Arendt's apparent belief that feminism and femininity are mutually exclusive, something I believe was an unfortunate but quite common misconception at the time. But when we examine the characteristics and perception of the feminism of the 1960s and 1970s, this does not seem too far-fetched. Second wave feminism, following the first wave in Western countries before the world wars that focused on women's suffrage, was concerned with the oppression of women dictated by society. While issues such as domestic violence, lack of financial independence, and body autonomy were seen as a personal problem between men and women in society, second wave feminists tried to change things by fighting the belief that women's only purpose in life was to raise children and look pretty. They saw this as the systemic condition that facilitated those problems of violence and injustice against women. In rejecting that notion of beauty being one of the two only assets of women, many saw feminists as women who rejected femininity itself rather than the reduction of a woman's being to her appearance. Another possible reason why Arendt distanced herself from the feminist movement of her time could be that second-wave feminism ultimately centered on the problems and experiences of white American middle-class women and housewives. This left of black women and other women of color, poor working women, and many more. Arendt was neither poor nor a woman of color, but from her position as an influential political philosopher and thinker respected by men for her work, it makes sense why she didn't personally care all that much about the issues of the feminist movement of the time. On the other side of things, the personal is political, a catchphrase popularized by Carol Hanisch, illustrates the issue second-wave feminists had with Hannah Arendt. The rejection of keeping the problems women were experiencing in private clashes with the concept of the ancient Greek public and private realms that Arendt utilizes in her book, The Human Condition. Let's look at Arendt's argument. Arendt distinguishes labor, work, and action as three aspects of the active life, or the vita activa. In that, she defines labor as necessary activities to maintain life, which includes biological needs such as food and sex. Work constitutes the building of the human world apart from nature, which includes both material and social artifacts, so both physical durable things and institutions and culture. Action incorporates everything that is done in the presence of and in cooperation with others to cause change, and this includes political life and speech. According to this categorization, labor exists in the private realm, work exists in the public realm but is done in solitary, and action can only be both public and interactive. 
Based on this, Arendt offers a critique for modernity by saying that the aspects of labor have taken over public life when they should have stayed private. The problem, in her opinion, is that now there is no room for pr true political life anymore, and the public realm is focused on satisfying material needs, which makes it vulnerable to consumerism and political indifference. Going by this interpretation of human life, second wave feminists were actively contributing to the conflation of private and public. Um, the issues they focused on mostly addressed topics that one might categorize under labor or not categorize at all. Additionally, many feminists were disappointed with Arendt for the complete lack of acknowledgement of gender in her theory on the human condition. In her argument, Arendt ignores that life experiences are different for people depending on their gender. Her critique of the effects of modernity is insightful, but leaves out how women are affected differently than men by the way society has been changing. As a side note here, in their criticism of Arendt's argument, second-wave feminists of that time neglected to acknowledge that it wasn't just women's experiences that were left out of Arendt's worldview. Arendt generalizes the human experience, dismissing differences caused by gender, economic status, and all other social identity markers. In that sense, um, the criticism was in line with the failure of second-wave feminism to acknowledge the overlap and interaction between social identity markers in people's lives that we now know as intersectionality. Upon reading Arendt's The Human Condition, Adrienne Rich famously commented that it embodies the tragedy of a female mind nourished on male ideologies. She criticizes Arendt's use of the public and private realm without acknowledging women's historical exclusion from the public sphere, which is something that feminists have criticized many times in over all of history. But Arendt's lack of acknowledgement for gender could also be seen as a refusal to fit women into a victim role by depicting them any differently from men in a sort of gender-neutral approach to human life. It seems to be a common theme with Arendt that she doesn't like to acknowledge the systemic quality of oppression. In the same interview where she made the remark about women and their lack of authority, she states that she doesn't really see the problem because she has, quote, always done what she wanted to do. This shows that she did not recognize her own positive experience as a privilege, but assumed that her experience disproved the severity of the issue for everybody. With the new presence of social media and the way we interact, movements such as hashtag MeToo provide ways for survivors to speak up about their experiences and hold people in power accountable. But this also means that as consumers of art, news, and thought, we have become more conscious of the relationship between someone and their creative output. Can we still listen to songs by artists who have been proven to have done things that are morally wrong? Do we categorically reject all sorts of output by people who hold beliefs we don't agree with? And I don't mean small controversies, but large issues that affect many people and society at large, such as feminism. With Hannah Arendt, the question arises, do female thinkers need to be feminists to be worthy of study? I don't have an answer to that, so I would like to reframe the question. Can we learn something from non-feminist thought and apply it in feminist arguments? An interesting approach to the seemingly opposing stances of Arendt and the feminist movement is to take a closer look at what Carol Hanisch is saying. In her essay about the personal and the political, Hanisch argues that sharing problems she experiences in her life with other women is not merely personal therapy but political action, because through this act they recognize the systemic character of the problems they all face. They learn to stop blaming themselves and that their personal problems are in fact systemic problems. 
Applied to Arendt's argument, could this practice not be an example of what Arendt classifies as action? Sharing their experiences could be the cooperation with and the presence of others Arendt speaks of. Understanding the common character of their problems as a systemic issue and developing goals for themselves could be the change. Both Arendt and Hanisch emphasize the importance and power of coming together. For Arendt, it is the revealing of the unique individual in exchange with others that contributes to greater societal change. Hanisch's description of her approach to feminist action is actually quite similar. She advocates for more theory and planning behind actions such as demonstrations as part of the movement, and she advocates for coming together with people of different opinions, arguing that this will bring more long-term change. Another approach is this. Arguably the most well-known of Arendt's concepts is the banality of evil, appearing in her report on the Eichmann trial in 1961. It wasn't, still is, hugely controversial because of its implications for Israel and the Holocaust, but applied to a more general context, it offers some interesting points. The report has no intentions of being a feminist text, yet the concept of the banality of evil includes some aspects that I think align with feminist, especially contemporary feminist thought. In her report, Arendt goes against the popular characterization of Eichmann, a Nazi involved in the logistics of the deportation of Jewish people during the war. She claims that Eichmann was not an evil monster, but someone, quote, terrifyingly normal, someone driven by nothing but a lack of empathy and judgment. She pleads for rational thinking and personal responsibility in the face of crime, which becomes banal when it's not named as a crime or adequately opposed. I think that living in the 21st century, the main concerns of contemporary feminism as I experience it are the prevalence of violence against women and non-binary people in everyday life and looking at those through the lens of intersectionality. The foundation of Arendt's argument is that rational thinking includes seeing oneself as a political being whose life is connected to others. This should imply that in order to recognize violence of all sorts against women as a crime, everyone could benefit from Arendt's plea for personal responsibility and rational thinking. Long-term societal change can only be achieved if everyone speaks up in the face of gendered violence, not just the people who are affected by it. This is not an inherently feminist thought either. It applies to all sorts of injustice, including racial discrimination. I think that this too can be connected to Arendt's concept of action and the power of free individuals coming together and evoking change through cooperation and exchange. This was my take on Hannah Arendt and feminism. Of course, this only scratched the surface of what there is to know about Arendt and how her work applies to different aspects of life and feminism. But I hope you learned something new anyways. Thank you for listening and tuning into this episode. And until next time.